I've really appreciated getting to talk about uh, our summer series and think about uh, these stories, messy stories of faith. I think that it, it really provides an honest look at these stories in the Bible, and it's, it's encouraging to me, and I hope it's encouraging to you as well, to remember that these great men and women of faith throughout history didn't have perfectly clean stories. They certainly didn't have perfectly clean uh, records. And as we know, as we look at the stories of our lives, the stories that we're writing each day, they're often incredibly messy. We have incredibly messy lives. And that mess is brought about usually because we've messed up, we've made mistakes, we've made poor decisions. Or sometimes other people mistreat us. And sometimes it's just because we're human. And that's a part of the condition of our existence. I hope that we can connect with these stories this summer. And especially tonight, I hope that we can connect with the messes that these characters found themselves in. And I, and I loved Kelly's lesson a couple of weeks ago about Joseph. And how Kelly pointed out that Joseph... He experienced incredibly high highs and incredibly low lows. And I honestly, I can't imagine the emotional strain that Joseph must have gone through and even the physical strain that he went through in those circumstances. But Joseph was faithful. Joseph trusted in God through every circumstance. And the example of people like Joseph that we've been talking about this summer It's incredible. It should encourage us that our commitment to God is one, it's possible through messy circumstances, and two, that it's incredibly worth it and incredibly valuable for us today. God chooses, God chose to teach us these stories. He's demonstrating what kind of God He is and the consequences of trusting either in him or in something else. And I hope that despite myself, despite my ineloquence tonight, despite my lack of spiritual maturity, that you'll allow God to teach you the principles behind uh, this story tonight that can change our perspective entirely. And with all that being said, we have another story this week as we look at Rahab and her role in Israel's conquest of the land of Canaan. The stories that we spent most of our time on this summer have been characters who find themselves in messy circumstances, but with Rahab especially, I think more than any other character we'll talk about this summer, she had a really messy identity. She was a very messy person. But that didn't stop Rahab from exhibiting incredible amounts of faith. And it definitely didn't stop God from responding to that faith with compassion. Now, before we get into Rahab's story, I want to I want us to refresh our minds a little bit uh, on where the people of Israel were coming from, what they had been through up until this point, because I think that's going to help us see the story of Rahab in a new light, to see just how incredible and how critical Rahab's faith was. And as we remember in its origins, the nation of Israel um, was at first just a group of about, uh, you know, less than a hundred people of Abraham's descendants. 
And they made their way to Egypt from the land of Canaan to escape a famine. And over time, as they interacted with the Egyptians, they fell out of favor with Egypt. And Egypt began to enslave and even oppress uh, the, the Israelites. And that took place over the course of 400 years, during which time Israel grew into a very large people. And it says in Exodus at the end of those 400 years of slavery that Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God was so moved to compassion for His people that He raised up Moses to deliver them from the oppression of the Egyptians. God sent Moses when he was 80 years old into Egypt to do a few things, to demonstrate God's power, to punish the Egyptians, and to rescue Israel. And the culmination of God's demonstration of power over the Egyptians was seen in the final plague performed by God. And before that plague, God had warned both the Israelites and the Egyptians that the destroyer was coming to take the life of every firstborn of every family no matter who they were. And the only way that a family could avoid this plague was to sacrifice a lamb, to partake of its body as a meal, and and to mark the doorposts of their house with its blood. And as we know, the Israelites heeded this warning. They partook of the sacrifice, and they marked their houses. And as a result, God spared them and passed over them. That's where we get the idea of the Passover. But the Egyptians ignored the warning. And God brought about the punishment He had decreed. And this plague was to serve as a sign, not only to Israel, but to Egypt, and really to the entire world, that that Yahweh wasn't just a God of this little band of slaves, but He was the one true God. He was the God of, of heaven and the God of earth. And He was powerful enough to bring the mightiest nation in the world to its knees, And after all of this, the Israelites left Egypt. They passed through the Red Sea where God washed away the enemies of Israel. And it's at this point that we we begin to see this struggle between Israel and God. God, man, he He had such good plans for His people. He had so much planned for them and it was going to be so great. They were to be separate and distinct from any other nation in their rituals, in the way that they treated each other, and especially in their relationship with God. And as a part of that relationship, Israel was going to be extraordinarily blessed. God was going to be their provider. He was going to be their God. He was going to be their conqueror and their king. But more than anything else, God was going to be a father to them. That's an incredible relationship. And it was through that incredible relationship that Israel was going to be like a light to the nations. They were going to be this beacon that demonstrated the character of God through the way that they loved each other. And all of the world was supposed to look at Israel and be amazed. Be amazed at their God and amazed at the way that they treated each other. And even not just amazed, but drawn to that. Like someone is drawn to the light, drawn to be a part of that special group of people, supremely blessed and extraordinarily cared for. 
But we know that that's not how it happened. Over the next, even just the next few days, the next year, after that, Israel demonstrated at every turn their lack of trust that God could really deliver on His promises. And before that journey to the promised land even really began, they blamed Moses, basically for getting them killed while their backs were up against the Red Sea. And they grumbled against Moses. Even after God delivered them from that, they grumbled against Moses because they were hungry and they were thirsty. And they reminisced about how great things used to be in Egypt when they were slaves and they were oppressed. They viewed that time as great. And when Moses was on Mount Sinai, do you remember how Aaron, Moses' own brother, formed the golden calf and attributed to it the deliverance that God had brought about of Israel from the land of Egypt. And at that point, God was so fed up that he, he basically told Moses, here's what's happening and here's what I'm going to do. I'm, gonna, I'm, just, I'm done with them. I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to wipe out the people of Israel and I'm going to start over with you because I can't handle their stubborn disobedience anymore. And if it wasn't for Moses' intercession in that moment, God might have wiped out all of Israel But we know that God's anger relented and he told Moses that he would lead them into the promised land. And at that point, after God had rescued Israel out of slavery, after Israel continually grumbled against God and against Moses, and after God continually showed them patience and forgiveness, Israel finally came to the edge of the Jordan just outside the promised land. Now, I want us to step away from Israel's journey just for a second. I know this is a lot of setting the stage, but I think it's going to be good for us. But stepping away from Israel's journey just for a second, let's, let's talk about the conquest that God had ordered of Canaan. God had commanded the people of Israel to take possession of the land of Canaan and drive out its inhabitants, putting to death those who were stubborn and hard-hearted enough to stay behind. And I think as we consider that, a natural question arises for us. Was God right to order the conquest of these nations? And answering this question, I think, is going to help us understand the story that Rahab is a part of. And as we read through the first few books of the Bible, a few things are clear about the Canaanites. The first mention of an impending judgment on the Amorites was all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, where we see God promise Abraham that his descendants would possess Canaan, but that it would be many generations from then because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. And based on that, it's clear that the Canaanites and the Amorites were becoming increasingly wicked as time went on. And as we continue to progress through the rest of the books leading up to Joshua, we see that the Canaanites are accused by God of having defiled the land by their violence and their idolatry. And in fact, as God is giving commands about purity to the Israelites, he accuses the Canaanites of having committed all of the sins that he was warning Israel against. And it's because of that overwhelming wickedness that the land... The land of Canaan, as God put it, was going to vomit out the Canaanites. And it's clear as we read through Joshua that the Canaanites were well aware of God. They they knew his power. His power preceded him. And it was clear to the Canaanites that they had been marked for destruction 
by this God because of the wicked things that they had done. And with all of that in mind, God gave them plenty of time to repent. Think about the 40 years that Israel was wandering around in the wilderness. Think about even the seven days that the Israelites were marching around Jericho. All of that time provided so many opportunities for the Canaanites to surrender and appeal to God for mercy, but many Canaanites chose to harden their hearts and fight against God and His people. And having said all that, we return to the story of Israel. They've come for the first time under Moses' guidance to the edge of the Jordan. And God commanded Moses to send 12 spies, one from each tribe, across the Jordan to spy out the land with the hopes, I think, that that they would come back with a good report, that they would tell the Israelites how amazing this land, this promised land was, and that that would give the Israelites courage to carry out the conquest ordered by God. But most of the spies returned, and as we know, they brought back a bad report. They told the Israelites how powerful the inhabitants of the land were, and they basically told Israel that they stood no chance of really defeating these nations. And I don't think that the fallout from, the, from that bad report can be overstated. Immediately, the people lost any ounce of courage they had left, and their hope of taking the promised land quickly evaporated. And they said to Moses, they said to Moses how much better it would have been if they had just died in Egypt, or if they had just died in the wilderness. They decided together to pick another leader to bring them back to Egypt, back to that slavery that they had cried out underneath. And finally, they made up their minds to stone Moses and Aaron who had done so much for them. And it's at that point that God finally had enough. He comes, the glory of the Lord entered the temple, and God comes in and condemns that generation of the Israelites. He commanded that Israel be made to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years so that everyone who was 20 years older, 20 years old and upward, would die in the wilderness. And that would make way for a new generation who would obey the voice of the Lord and take possession of the land. And we see that things happen just like God ordered it. That generation perished in the wilderness and a new one was raised up in its place. And so finally, after 40 more years, the new generation of Israelites returned to the Jordan with only Joshua and Caleb remaining from that old generation. Now Israel's waited with anticipation for this moment when they would finally get another chance to re-enter the promised land. And I'm, I'm certain that there was some excitement with this opportunity, but I think we'd be naive to assume that these Israelites had no doubts about their ability to actually conquer the Canaanites. We saw again, even with this new generation, that during the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Israel repeatedly questioned and grumbled against God, sometimes even defying His commands openly. And right before his death, Moses warned the Israelites of the danger of breaking trust in God. As if Moses was just like, I'm just going to try one last time and maybe they'll listen to me. But God, this is how sad the reality of their situation was. God told Moses, listen to this from Deuteronomy, that this new generation would arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land into the midst of which they are going. And they will forsake me 
and they will break My covenant which I've made with them. My anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide My face from them, and they will be consumed, and many evils and many troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Is it not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us? But God says, I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they will do, for they will turn to other gods. It's a reality for God that Israel would be disobedient. And sadly, this really shows that the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and learning to trust day by day that God's going to provide for me, that God's going to protect me, He's going to take care of me, that didn't get through to the Israelites. And so as we begin the book of Joshua, we have a clear picture of the lack of commitment that Israel showed to its God, even by this new generation of Israelites who should have learned from the mistakes of their parents. And even in Joshua chapter 1, it makes me laugh, it makes me cry all at the same time when the Israelites tell Joshua, hey, we're going to serve you, we're committed to serving you just like we served Moses. And if you're keeping score at home, like that's, that shouldn't instill very much confidence at all in Joshua that they're actually going to follow through. So thanks for bearing with me through all of that. And as we get into Joshua chapter 2, I think having that fresh perspective on our minds is going to allow us to see the story of Rahab in, in a new light and further appreciate this, this short but powerful story. So let's begin in Joshua chapter 2 there in verse 1. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. Now why do you think that, God, that Joshua chose to send these spies? The first time Moses sent 12 spies across the Jordan, it was at God's command. But this time there's, there's no mention that God commanded that Joshua send these two spies. And it could be that Joshua's wanting an encouraging report to share with Israel, bolster their confidence, that, that makes sense. But the fact that he sent the spies in secret shows that maybe Joshua is dealing with doubts of his own. And he certainly knows that a bad report from the spies could devastate Israel's confidence once again. Let's continue on there in verse 1. And the spies went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Let's think about Rahab for a second and who she is. Let's, here's what we know about her. Rahab, from the Israelites' perspective, she's a foreigner. She's basically a part of the people that God had deemed exceedingly wicked and worthy of destruction. She, and, and not to mention her entire family, is basically marked for death or for exile, along with the rest of the Canaanites. Based on her description as a prostitute, it's clear that she participated in the wickedness that Canaan is being punished for. But there's also another side for us to look at Rahab. She seemed to be both literally in her city and figuratively on the outskirts of her society. When I was talking with my brother Kevin about Rahab and her character and who she was, Kevin made the comment that no one gets into prostitution because their life is going really well. <laughs> no, one, no one stumbles into that because everything's going well. 
And I think that's so true for Rahab. Even without knowing much about her backstory, it's incredibly likely that Rahab went through some really hard circumstances that led to her choosing that. And it may be that she viewed prostitution as the last way she could provide for her family. And all of that doesn't even consider the shame and the reproach and the abuse that she must have suffered because of the way that men treated her. And the window we get into Rahab's character shows us just how broken her situation was in the midst of a broken people and in the midst of a broken and really messed up story. With that being said, going on to verse 2, it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. And man, what a dilemma that Rahab immediately faces from the king's soldiers. Would Rahab be willing to protect the spies of a foreign nation, spies who she literally just met for the first time, knows nothing about them, at the risk of being killed by her own people? What do you think would happen to her family if they didn't buy her story? She would likely risk all of their lives as well as her own just to protect these two men who represent the nation who is about to conquer her city. And at this point, she doesn't even have the guarantee from them that that she's going to be safe on the other side of their conquest. But let's watch and see what Rahab does and her reasoning behind it. In verse 4, But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the two men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, and listen to this in verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you for the Lord your God He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Man, that's incredible faith. That's incredible faith from someone who decided she had nothing left to lose. Despite whatever consequences were going to come, she had decided that God's plans and God's purposes were absolutely certain. How did she come to that decision? She looked at God's track record. God had never broken a promise. He had never failed to keep His word. He had humbled the mightiest nation in the world. He had conquered powerful kings. 
He had divided the Red Sea to rescue his people from slavery. And she recognized that. And she recognized God for who he was, the one true God, the God of heaven and the God of earth. For her, there was no doubt that when God condemned the Canaanites and warned them of the conquest to come, that it would come about. And her conviction was so strong that she risked everything she had left for just a chance to maybe escape the mark of death and exile God had placed on her people. And as crazy as that seems, when Rahab recognized that God's promises were the most certain thing in the world, it really makes perfect sense what she did. And in that brokenness, in the mess of her life that she had caused, she truly threw herself at the mercy of these spies who for Rahab were really like representatives of Israel and by extension representatives of God and appeals to them for mercy. What's their response? What is God's response to Rahab? Let's continue on in verse 14 and see. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills so the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go on your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in your house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us to swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. The response of the spies toward Rahab is one of grace and one of mercy. And this response is really confirmed by God and it's fulfilled by God in uh, Joshua chapter 6 when we see the conquest of Jericho and Rahab and her house being spared from that. And we're going to talk in a minute about how God viewed Rahab and how he responded to her. But I want to mention briefly how much I love that symbolism of the scarlet cord that Rahab tied in the window. For, for Rahab and her house, it served as a sign that they would be spared. And, and I love how that looks back to an event I mentioned earlier when God carried out his final plague in Egypt, where God spared all the families that offered the sacrifice of a lamb and marked the doorposts of their houses with its blood. That scarlet mark on their houses meant that God would spare that house from judgment. And not only does the scarlet cord in Rahab's window look back to the Passover, but it also looks forward to the mercy provided through the sacrifice of Christ. And that those who are marked by, by the blood of Christ are spared and are rescued out of a world that's being swept away in judgment. And it amazes me how this story continues throughout all of Scripture and it amazes me even more 
that God thought it was right to include someone like Rahab in that redemptive plan. And let's continue in the story, and we'll talk more about the implications of the rescue of Rahab for us today. In verse 22, it says, They departed, the spies departed, and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given us all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. And as we can see, the spies made it safely back, made it back to Joshua. And what an incredible report that must have been for Joshua. That must have given him so much assurance that God was capable of bringing about what he had promised. And I want us to stop and consider for a second. This is what I never do when I read this story, is stop and consider for a second just how important Rahab's decision of faith was for Israel. As we talked about, the Israelites had proven time and time again how volatile, how shallow their commitment to God really was. And it seems like at every turn, their commitment to Him, when met with the slightest bit of resistance, uh, they, they used that as an excuse to just abandon God immediately and drop their trust in Him. What do you think the response would have been if the spies didn't come back and the Israelites heard about it? What do you think the spies would have said if Rahab didn't tell them the truth about how afraid the Canaanites were? What if the spies had been captured and the king of Jericho made an example out of them in front of the entire uh, nation of Israel and executed them? What, What would the Israelites have done? There's no way I think we can count on the faith of the Israelites to be strong enough to withstand that kind of resistance. And I think if Israel had walked away at that moment one more time away from God, after everything that God had done for them and everything that they had been through, God might actually have followed through with the destruction of Israel that he threatened before Moses. In reading the story of Rahab, I don't think I'd ever really considered the importance of her faith to that scale, but it's clear in the context of that struggle between Israel and God that the outcome of those spies' mission was critical. I don't think we can overstate the implications of Rahab's faith, and I don't think it's overstating to say that her act of faith saved the nation of Israel. And... (laughs) How incredible is that, considering who Rahab was, considering what Rahab had done, considering where she was coming from, and the hopelessness of her circumstances, that her faith meant so much to so many, and what a lesson for us today. And let's read the final part of her story. In Joshua chapter 6, we see as The nation of Israel has crossed the Jordan. They've marched around Jericho. God brings down the walls. And the conquering of Canaan has begun. But we see this in verse 22 of chapter 6. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. 
So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought out all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. And there in verse 25, But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out. Jericho. And there's so much we can learn from Rahab through her faithful example in a time of crisis. Her faith, trusting in God, trusting in his track record, proved to be salvation for her when the conquest began in Jericho. And I think that principle is very easy, very understandable for us when we think about the story of Rahab. But what can we learn about God from this story? Remember that these stories are meant to teach us something about the character of God. What does God show us in his treatment of Rahab through this story? There's a few things that I want us to think about as we leave tonight. The first is that God's mercy was greater than Rahab's sin. And despite all the wickedness that Rahab lived in, God did not consider her beyond forgiveness and acceptance. And can't you see God looking down at Rahab and seeing her just like this sheep in need of a shepherd, desperate for that rescue, desperate for protection? God wasn't afraid to step into Rahab's story and rescue her from the midst of a broken and corrupt people. The second thing I noticed is that God's compassion broke down barriers. Think of everything that separated the Israelites from Rahab. Rahab was a foreigner. She was an outcast by her own people. She was a prostitute. She was utterly sinful. And yet God broke through all of those barriers to bring Rahab into his fold and give her hope. That's incredible. Also, we see that God demonstrated incredible patience toward the Canaanites. God's response to Rahab proved that God desired all the Canaanites to turn away from their sinful lives and appeal to God for mercy. And he was ready. He was willing to forgive them and rescue them whenever they approached him sincerely, regardless of however much they had wronged him. And that really demonstrates God's justice to me in driving out these nations. He was ready and willing to accept them with open arms, anyone who would repent and trust in God. But here's the biggest challenge for us to consider in light of this story. How do we treat Rahab? How do we treat Rahab today? Do we respond to Rahab like God does? Is our first response to the Rahabs in our life one of compassion and one of patience? We don't ignore the wrongdoing. We don't make light of the sinful behavior that's being committed. But do we view Rahab as a sheep without a shepherd? longing for protection. And perhaps the most important question for us to consider tonight is are we providing a way out for people like Rahab? A way out of that slavery that they're a part of? Are we seeking out opportunities to show love to those who the world has deemed unlovable? Isn't that the kind of love that we found in Jesus? And praise God for His love for us in the midst of our messiness and brokenness. And God is calling us. 
to show that same kind of love, that same kind of compassion, that same mercy, that same patience toward the unlovable. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, then we can see that we don't show enough love to the Rahabs in our lives. And my final encouragement for all of us tonight is this, is that we would recommit to loving the Rahabs in our lives the way that God loved Rahab and rescued her. Thank you guys for listening tonight. I'm going to close this in a prayer before we dismiss. God, we are humbled at Your grace and mercy. You constantly demonstrate how many chances You give humans, You give Israel, You give people like Rahab, and how badly and desperately You want to accept them. And God, as we think about the messiness and brokenness of our lives, all of the wrong that we've done, we are so thankful that You are ready and willing to accept us and welcome us back into Your family to be a part of Your people. I pray, God, that You would challenge us to view people differently, to view them as You do, to demonstrate love and compassion toward those who the world has determined and told us are unlovable. God, challenge us to grow deep in our faith, deep in our love tonight. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.